Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I wasn't expecting to be here today, but here I am. Uh, so you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. It was what I was going to preach for free grace. And then I realized I only I preached a year ago, so there's either two types of people here, those who haven't heard it and those who forgot what I said. So uh, it's good for us to go over Luke chapter 2 uh, again and certainly see it in parallel with what we've seen uh, in Matthew's gospel. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We're going to see the, the birth of our Lord uh, in verses 1 through 7 of Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went out from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God, we are thankful for your blessed eternal plan of redemption. We're thankful for your eternal decree concerning the salvation of sinners. And we're thankful for the accomplishment of the son in time and space, the accomplishment of he who became man. Thank you that the son took on human flesh. Thank you that he is like us in every way, yet without sin. And we're thankful that all of your uh, uh, history, all of world history moves concerning the salvation of sinners and concerning your glory. And we're thankful that certainly everything is about this is concerned is a uh, uh, hinges upon the work of our Lord. Thank you for his coming. Thank you for his living. Thank you for his dying. And thank you for his rising again. We are thankful for the humili humiliation of that second person who was born of a woman, but even born in that lowly place. Thank you that he identified with us. Thank you that he is like us in every way, yet without sin. Thank you that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But after being found in the likeness of man, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And thank you that he has uh, been given the name that is above every other name. And we're thankful that we see this, for we are weak and feeble. We are a lowly people. And we're thankful that our Savior came to the lowly place as a king, to die for wretched sinners like us, that we might dwell with him forever. So we pray today, O oh God, as we see your redemptive providence, that you would give us comfort and encouragement, that you are the God over all, that you are God most high. And we also pray, O oh God, that we be, uh, have comfort and encouragement concerning the salvation of sinners and even salvation of lowly people. So we pray, O oh God, that you would be with us now by your spirit. We again ask for illumination from on high. Help us to see what we need to see once again uh, in this passage, and we pray that you be honored and glorified now in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, certainly when it comes to the doctrine of providence, God's ways are better than our ways. As I thought I would be in Chilliwack today, the snow had other plans. And thankfully, God is pleased to work by his means. He's pleased to work by way of providence, and certainly we see that here in the Gospel of Luke. This so-called first Christmas, there isn't really much to write home about 
is there? We certainly love the birth announcements. We love the shepherds. We love the wise men. But when it comes to the actual birth of our Lord in Luke 2, it's kind of a bit of a whimper. It kind of comes with a bit of a, ah, because we're kind of confused perhaps in a lot of ways as we've seen the announcement and as we see the shepherds, what then do we make of verses 1 through 7? And what then do we make of, of this census from one Caesar Augustus. And so perhaps if we blow past verses one through seven to the shepherds, we're going to miss the significance and the thing that we need most. Because there was a time for the people of Israel, this time specifically, when the people uh, were hopeless. The people were waiting. The people were longing. They were hoping for the long-awaited Messiah to come. And usually in hopeless times, people presume something extravagant but sometimes less is more. And God usually shows uh, his power in a less is more type of way to highlight that it's he who does it. And so Christ's coming really highlights how insignificant we are and how Christ identifies with us. Because notice, he isn't born in a palace. He is born in an inn in a feeding trough. And so in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, Luke wants us to see the promised son who was born in the lowly place. He wants us to see the promised son who was born in a manger. And we'll look at this idea of the promised son in the lowly place under two considerations this morning. First of all, we'll see a guide to the birthplace, verses 1 through 5. And secondly, we'll see a king in the lowly place, verses 6 and 7. So a guide to the birthplace, verses 1 through 5, and then a king in the lowly place, verses 6 and 7. So let's first look at a guide to the birthplace in verses 1 through 5. And notice in verses 1 through 3, we see a worldwide providence. Notice we see the decree of Caesar, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, again, we know it's during the time of anticipation. God has not spoken for 400 years. He's finally spoken to Zacharias. He's spoken to Mary. We must not forget that not a lot of people know about this. Like we saw with the wise men, not a lot of people in Israel were aware that the king was coming or had come or was near to being uh, born. So certainly for us as the readers, we know it's a great time of anticipation. We know that there is fulfillment, but by all accounts, there really isn't much to write home about when it comes to the birth of our Lord. And certainly Luke gives us sort of that feel when we see this census. And so we see this one Caesar Augustus. Certainly, he is a significant figure in world history. And in reality, he was actually quite a good ruler. He brought about peace. He brought about prosperity. One thing that he implemented was what's called the Pax Romana, the peace treaty, which was actually important for the spread of the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. People could travel freely without worry. Uh, without worry. That was an important thing, how God used that political uh, uh, policy to bring about his gospel to the ends of the earth. So Caesar was a... A lot of ways, a good figure, a good, not, not a good figure, but a good ruler. And so it's at this, uh, the, the timing of his decree is what will make way for the coming and the birth of our Lord. And certainly the content of that decree is the registration. Certainly the registration was for the purpose of taxes. The governments love taxes. Any government likes to know how much money they're going to get from the citizens. And so this was the purpose of this census. So this decree goes out, 
there's going to be a, a census. All the world is going to come to their own place to be registered. And all the world at that time was the Roman Empire. For all intents and purposes, the Roman Empire was the world. And so the whole world is going to be registered at the decree of Caesar Augustus. Then in verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, there perhaps is some debate here on what this means, but suffice it to say, it points out that the people of Israel were still under servitude. The people of Israel are still waiting for a king. The people of Israel uh, have not been released. The people of Israel are awaiting the long-awaited Messiah who would bring salvation for his people. So Quirinius was the one enforcing it at the behest of Caesar. Uh, and so it highlights the people, even at the time of the census, were still waiting for that one who would come. And then we see in verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, all this points out God's, again, worldwide providence or God's political providence. You see, the worldwide significance is important for the entire gospel to be spread to the ends of the earth. We've seen some of the glimpses of it in the Old Testament. We've seen glimpses of it with the genealogy and with the wise men. But here, the way Luke highlights that significance is with this census. Christ's coming happens during a worldwide situation. Caesar doesn't know what he is doing. I mean, he knows what he's doing politically, but he has no idea that he's a pagan puppet. He has no idea that he is insignificant. He has no idea that he is being used to bring the king of heaven and earth to the birthplace. He has no idea that God above him is using him to bring about his purposes. I think the point is very clear that Luke wants us to see the one who comes to the lowly place is far greater than the one who gives this decree. And so we shouldn't be impressed with Caesar. We should be more impressed with the king who was born in a manger. Ryle says a true Christian should never be greatly moved or disturbed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. If you're like me, you get disturbed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. But we know someone who is greater than all of them. He goes on to say, he should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. He should regard every king and potentate, an Augustus, a Cyrenius, a Darius, a Cyrus, a Sennacherib, as a creature who, with all his power, can do nothing but what God allows, and nothing which is not carrying out God's will. And when the ruler of this world, uh, rulers of this world set themselves against the Lord, he should take comfort in the words of Solomon. There is one higher than they. And Luke wants us to see the one who is higher than they, namely our Lord, who was born in a manger. So there's this worldwide providence, but worldwide providences have specific application. And so in verses four and five, we see a traveling providence. That is, we know, according to Micah 5, that the ruler would be born in Bethlehem. But the problem is, Joseph doesn't live in Bethlehem. So how is he going to get to the birthplace? And Luke highlights that in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. 
If it was not for this census, would Joseph have gone to his hometown? If not for the decree to find out the taxation, how much money they're going to get, but doing it in the place of one's birth, how in, how then would Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem? See, God is using providence. God is using ordinary providence to bring about his redemptive work. He's using the decree of Cyrus, uh, not Cyrus, the decree of, of Caesar to bring about his purposes to save people and to save sinners by the way of one whose name is Jesus. And so the worldwide decree hones in on how it affects Joseph and how it affects Mary. We are to forget about Caesar now. Both certainly have received visits from angels. We saw that in Matthew 1. We, there is that in Luke uh, Luke 1 as well. Mary's in Luke 1. Uh, Joseph's in Matthew 1. And so they have received this uh, divine confirmation. They've received this divine prophecy that the one who is the son of the Most High is in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so God blessed God's blessed providence guides the royal family to the place of the Savior's birth. And again, the census has worldwide significance, but not because Caesar decreed it, but because God fulfills his promises. That's the worldwide significance, not because of what Caesar says, but because of what God does. And what God does is he is bringing about his purposes. It's how they get to the city of David. Now, certainly the language there of Bethlehem, we saw that last time when the the the, the chief priests and scribes were, inquir- were inquiring for Herod where the Christ was to be born, and they quoted Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, Matthew is more explicit. I think the allusion to Micah 5, 2 is also very clear. That is, out of Bethlehem, out of the, the land of Judea, you are by no means the least among the people, for out of you a ruler shall come. And there's that amalgamation with 1 Samuel chapter 5, uh, or 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, the one who would uh, be the shepherd to my people, Israel. And so they make their way there. They're coming to this insignificant place. And Bethlehem in the Old Testament was insignificant. So it highlights that as well. Certainly was the place of David, but as a town, it was kind of small. There's also another place in the Old Testament where it was a dark place. Remember, that's where Naomi's from. And Naomi's going through a very dark time and the people of Israel going through a very dark time. Well, the the Messiah is going to come from an unexpected place. He's going to come to a dark place and he's going to shine a light from that place. The Messiah is not going to be born in Jerusalem He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Certainly it fulfills Micah 5 too, but also highlights how he comes to that unexpected place for people in great need. Now we also see that he's of the royal lineage. We see that he is the the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. We saw what that meant in uh, Matthew's gospel. It's much more... Uh, kind of condensed here for us in Luke chapter 2, but he is of a royal line. He's of the legal line through his father. He's of the fleshy line through his mother. He really is David's greater son. He is the long-awaited Messiah that they have hoped for since God made that promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. God said, I will give you a dynasty. I will give you a king. And they have been waiting for him to come, and he is coming in the one who was born of the virgin 
So royal lineage, notice, uh, to be registered, he does. Now he renders to Caesar what is Caesar's, verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. As we saw a couple weeks ago, a betrothal is basically marriage. It's not the same as our engagement. It's basically two parts to marriage. First of all, the dowry has been paid, but they don't live together. That's betrothal. And then after that, the, the, the second part of the marriage is when uh, she goes to live with her husband. So uh, probably at this point, they're actually married, uh, but they live like betrothed. They lived, uh, he does not know her until uh, uh, she brings bo- forth her firstborn son. Uh, but they go together. They go to the place of Bethlehem to be registered, uh, his uh, betrothed, who was with child. So even there, we see the fulfillment of God's promise to, to Mary in Luke 1, uh, that the son of the highest dwell is, is uh, 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 the shadow of the most high has come upon her. The son of most, the most high is conceived in her. The son of the highest is going to be born very soon. So God guides them there. God brings them to Bethlehem. God brings the, uh, the parents of our Lord to the place where he is to be born now i think this highlights something very important for us sometimes we always look for the extraordinary in life don't we even though we're calvinists and we believe in god's ordinary providences we always kind of want something fanat or uh, fantastic sometimes or extravagant or extraordinary we must recognize that god works in the ordinary ways And even when it comes to the salvation of sinners, yes, it is a miracle that God changes hearts. But God does so in so very ordinary ways, doesn't he? When you consider the way in which you were saved, when I consider the way in which I was saved, it wasn't always this, you know, flash of lightning. There it is. Perhaps it's a friend inviting you to youth group. Perhaps it's when you start reading your Bible and God does a mighty work through his word in that way. Perhaps you're new to a country and some of your friends go to church. And so you go with them. Your family goes to church. You go with them and you hear the word. Perhaps you're walking along the road and some stranger invites you to church. Perhaps or even your parents faithfully teach you about Jesus day after day. You see, it's not always these, we could say, sunburst conversions, although there are those sunburst conversions. That is, someone's a wretch, they hear the word, boom, they're saved all at once. There are those, but most of them are sunrise. That is, God works slowly. We might not remember, not that the regeneration happens all at once, but God guides us, and we don't remember the day we were exactly so, the exact day we were saved, but God nonetheless still works. God savingly works in ordinary ways. God savingly works in the advancement of the church as well. We don't always, we are called to preach the word of God and we believe the spirit works, but we don't always, I don't always know what's in your mind, to be honest with you, dear brethren. I don't know what you're thinking all the time. I don't know what the, you know, I know that believe the spirit does work and we see the manifestation and the evidence of that, but we don't always see the invisible working that the spirit is doing. we never see the invisible working that the spirit is doing, but it's also very ordinary, isn't it? It's also very kind of matter of fact, isn't it? But nonetheless, God still works in a saving way. Davis says God's fingerprints, however, don't make noise. So you often find evidence of his presence at some later point, as you look back, and see the subtle touches and silent traces of his work. It often seems so natural, like a decree for a census. But nothing should surprise you 
if he'll even stoop to using an emperor to carry out his plan of redemption. Brethren, it's comforting to know that God guides the world events to bring about world-altering significance for his people. God really does guide. God really does save. God really does work. So that's a guide to the birthplace. Let's then look secondly at a king in the lowly place in verses 6 and 7. And again, kind of a matter-of-fact type birth. It is a miraculous conception. It is a miracle that a virgin gives birth, but she goes through the typical gestational period. I mean, he is going to be born, and he's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloth. He's going to be a real person. He's going to be a real boy. He's going to be a real man. He really is. And so we see God's providence here. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Again, the timing of it, isn't that remarkable in God's providence? Uh, Caesar could have called one, what, seven months earlier, six months earlier, five months. He called it right at the time she was supposed to give birth. And again, the ordinary providence of God worldwide, but also for Mary as well. And so the language of there, the, the days were completed for her to be delivered just means it's time for her to have the son of God. What do you know? It's time for her to deliver the one who is the son of the most high. And we see verse seven, she brought forth her firstborn son. And again, with all the fanfare, with all the announcement, with all the shepherds and all the wise men, it kind of just kind of just comes, doesn't it? Oh, she's born or he's born. She gives birth. There it is. That's kind of the point, isn't it? That God works in these ways. That God brings about salvation in these ways that the son, when he came, yes, he was prophesied. Yes, he was promised. But in his actual coming, it's kind of just there it is. The one who is God is born. Now, yes, I know next in the next verses, he unpacks the, sh- uh, uh, the angel appears to the shepherds, lowly men he comes to. But the actual birth kind of comes in sort of a, that's sort of it kind of response. So she brings forth her firstborn son. And certainly the language of firstborn, uh, certainly he really was the firstborn, like in order. But firstborn theologically refers to the preeminent one, the one who receives the portion, the one who has the highest authority. Certainly we saw that language in Colossians 1. We see how uh, the son is the firstborn over all creation, not the first created, but the one who is overall above all. And then we see how he's the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, That is, he is the firstborn of new creation. He really was first to be raised, and we will be raised with him. But he really is the preeminent one overall, over creation and new creation. So certainly all of that theology is wrapped up in this word of firstborn. What it meant for the old covenant people, God chose them to be the firstborn. What it means uh, for us that Christ is the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, all that is packed into this one word, namely, who is the firstborn. He is the firstborn of Mary, but he is the firstborn of new creation. And she brought forth her firstborn son. And then notice what she does with him, a baby in a manger, and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The purpose of the swaddling cloth, I think, is twofold. 
One, it's going to be a sign for the shepherds because you wouldn't expect to be a king to be wrapped in swaddling cloth and placed in a manger. And so that's going to be the sign for them as the angel comes and has to proclaim it, has to tell them about it. There is born to you this day a savior in the city of David. Here's the sign. He is wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. That's how you're going to know that this is the savior of the world who brings good Tiding. So there is that aspect, a sign for the shepherd. And really all of verse seven kind of highlights these two purposes, the sign for the shepherds, but also the lowliness of his birth. He really became man and he really was wrapped in swaddling cloth. He really needed to be held by his mother. He really did grow. He really did, you know, he was a boy and then a man. He really was all that we are yet without sin. He didn't pop out a man and ready, here we go, I'm ready to do my ministry. And in fact, he waited 30 years before he did his ministry. It was the timing of God that it would be at 30 that he would engage in his public ministry. We don't know much about between the birth and you know, age 30, do we? We have that instance in Luke when he's in the temple, I'm about my father's business, but we don't have that other period. One thing we can be sure of, though, about that period, brethren, he was perfect in every way. And brethren, he was perfect in every way in the ordinary place, wasn't he? In the daily round, in his daily life, he was perfect in every way. So he was wrapped in swaddling cloth. He is lowly. He identifies with us. He actually became, man, that's the mystery of his person, isn't it? (laughs) The one who is God became man. And the one who became man didn't stop being God when he became man. I mean, that's the mystery, isn't it? But he is like us in every way, yet without sin. And again, it's just so matter of fact. In a lowly place, wrapped in swaddling cloth, he who is God became man. And notice she places him in a, lays him in a animal trough. That was his crib. Far cry from some of the the modern amenities we have as parents when it comes to the, you, know, you have those swings, right? You can swing them to sleep. You know, that only works for six months. Those are expensive, aren't they? They're a lot. We can have that. You want to swing your baby? There it is. I mean, we have such modern amenities and he's placed in a trough. He is placed in a manger. People are looking for David, but certainly he is the Messiah and will prove that, but they're their kind of view of it is going to be shattered in a lot of ways. He's wrapped in swaddling cloth, laid in a manger, and notice, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is where I like to troll everybody concerning their nativity setups, because first of all, they're idolatrous, right? You can't have a picture of Christ. And second of all, they're inaccurate. And here's why they're inaccurate. One, the wise men and the shepherds weren't there at the same time. And two, what does it mean that they went to the inn? Well, the idea of inn carries the idea of a guest room, not a holiday inn. It's not that like they were walking around trying to go to the holiday inn, quality inn, whatever inn, and trying to figure out where they were going. That's not what it was. But it was probably the situation uh, uh, that was the reason there was no room, A, because there's a census, everybody's there. So everybody's there, everybody needs a place to stay, so stay. So that's one. The meaning of the word in here probably means guest room. 
And this word is only found in three other, two other places in the Bible from this one. And the other place, uh, one other place is in Luke 22, talking about the guest room, the upper room, when Jesus has his last supper. And so what that was, was houses had their main room, then they had the guest room. And because all the relatives were there all at once, there wasn't room for them to be in the guest room. So they had to sleep in the main room with the sleeping quarters. And what it would have been is that the, the trough or the, the animal quarters and the main quarters would have been closely connected with the trough that sets them apart. And so that uh, it was between the family room and the animal room. That was what the trough did for them. So they were near the animals. She's probably sitting in the room and boom, she can just put them right in there. But that's this historical situation. There was no room for them in the inn. They had to be not in the guest room, but in the main family room and next to the animal room where this trough was. So feel free to go take down your nativity stories after today, because they're all wrong. And I actually am sort of serious, but well, I know I joke, but every sort of joke has an element of truth, right? So I definitely uh, am telling you to go do that after today. Uh, but all this is meant to highlight the significance of where the king comes from, or where the king comes to, sorry, he comes from, he is God, and he doesn't stop being God, but he comes to the earth. And all this is meant to highlight the humiliation that he undergoes when he becomes man. You see, Christ in his humiliation, it's not just his dying, but it's also in his being born. The Baptist Catechism, chapter, a question answer 31 says, in what did Christ's humiliation consist? In his being born. And in that low condition. Not just that he was born, but also that he was born in the way in which he was born. You see, brethren, we have to understand as much as man is the pinnacle of creation, man is not the greatest being. There is one who is, I am. There is one who is being itself. And certainly that's the problem of sin. We think we're God rather than recognizing the one who is God, recognizing who he is. But the beautiful thing is that the one who is God became man. And I certainly think Philippians 2, 5 through 11 comes to my mind. The one who, though he's in the form of God, that he is, he is God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto, although he is God, but he made himself of no reputation. He's not emptying himself of omniscience. He's not emptying himself of omnipresence. What it means is when he uh, humbles himself or when he empties himself, what it means is he's, he became man. The one who is fully God stooped to us. That's how we can say God dwells with us. God dwells with us in his omnipresence, favorably or unfavorably. And God dwells with us most assuredly in the coming of this one who is son. And thankfully, he didn't just come to be man. He was born in the lowly place for wretched people like us. Ryle says, we see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor 
as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. Through his life of suffering, as well as his death, he has obtained eternal redemption for us. All through his life, he was poor for our sakes, and from the hour of his birth to the hour of his death, and through his poverty, we are made rich. Brethren, that's the comfort, isn't it? That the Christ came for those in the lowly place. Christ identifies with us. That's why he's a sympathetic high priest in Hebrews chapter 4. How does God identify with us? Not by relinquishing anything about him, his godness, but by taking on human flesh. And as that one who at the fullness of the time, Galatians 4, he is the one who redeems us and gives us life in him. The we who are lowly are going to be exalted. And the reason we who are lowly are going to be exalted is because he who is exalted became lowly. And thankfully, he didn't stay lowly. He was raised and was declared to be the son of God with power. And he is exalted again in a, a man, the, the, the God man, Christ in his human nature is exalted as he sits at the right hand of God, the father almighty. So thankfully, he redeems us. He gives us that ought to give us comfort but also it should give us comfort as the church because the world is going to consider us lowly. The world is going to view us as a lowly type of institution. The churches or the people, the world is going to view us as not that important, but thankfully we see God who highly esteems us and that the second person died for us. And so in all of this, in verses 1 through 7, and all of the sort of ordinariness of verses 1 through 7, it teaches us that we shouldn't be concerned with all the extravagance, but we should marvel at his lowliness. And we shouldn't miss the Savior who saves sinners. That is, he is the one who came, who was born, who was wrapped in swaddling cloth, and placed in a manger. That is the point of his coming. That is the point of Luke 1, Luke 2, Matthew 1, Matthew 2. That is the point of our gathering, that we might see Christ and him crucified, and not just him crucified, the one who came, who lived, who died, and rose again. That really is where there is joy and joy to the world. The Lord has come. He came in a manger that sinners might dwell in an eternal palace forever. Let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful again for your eternal purpose and plan. And thank you for that execution in time and space. And thank you, O God, that we can put our trust in you as the potentate of time, that you work all things for your glory. You work all things for the good of your people, even as we are weary and heavy laden, even as we have our own struggles, own sins, own troubles, even as we have to deal with the struggles and sins of others, even world leaders. Thank you that you reign. And thank you that you are guiding all things. And thank you, O God, that uh, one day all our suffering shall be ended. One day all this momentary light affliction shall be gone. 
and one day we shall be with you forever. And so may this give us comfort, may this give us encouragement. Thank you that you give us all we need in this life and all we need for the next life. And we're thankful that we have all we need in Christ. Thank you that he came and was born in the lowly place, that we who are lowly might be exalted. And so we ask, O oh God, that we would be exalted because of Christ and what he has done. We lift up our heads and fix our eyes upon Christ even now as we walk in this world. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them. Please work in them. Please give them new life. And we pray that you be with all of us as we travel home. Give us safety on the roads. Thank you that man plans his ways, but you guide our steps and that you are the God overall. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.